Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Colton and I, I wish I could say I put this lecture together all by myself which is also a good way of protecting myself, so if it just goes down in flames, I can also bring you with me. Um, we talked about what did we want to do with Christology and literature. Today we'll have a talk on Sidney and, and Shakespeare, um, on Paul Blondel, very specific poets. And so we thought maybe let's give this expansive view. If, uh, if we're going to read Christ and literature at a liberal arts college, and we want to read... Um, we want to read Christ faithfully, and now the English professor in me is going to come out, but we also want to read literature faithfully, and I think this is part of the complaint that you're talking about. We have to ask, how do we go about doing these things? The conference asks a seemingly easy question. How does a reader engage with literature Christologically? And in general, I find that there are two temptations there, and you've started to spell this out nicely. I think one is we can be too reductive in our Christology. That is to say, uh, we become heresy hunters. We want to know, does this poet have his Christology correct? From whatever tradition he or she is coming from, is it correct? Does it follow properly? Does it conform to whatever creedal Christology we may take as lowercase orthodox, be it the third through six ecumenical councils, the magisterium, the 39 articles, the Westminster Confessional? When we read from that, we want to go, so is this really Christ here in the text? All right. We then look to the purity of literature in as much as it upholds doctrine. And this is a fine scholarly approach. I've, I have no, no real problem with it. In fact, I've done it myself. But I'm not yet convinced that it serves the love of literature. Rather, literature simply becomes the vehicle for doctrine, or at least the discourse of doctrine. On the other hand, we can be very loose with our Christology and just about declare anything sacramental or we want to sanctify things, anything. There seems to be a baptism awaiting in any reference to water, dew, a morning shower, a mud puddle, in whatever given poem or short story or novel. Or probably everyone's first introduction to Christology at the most basic level as we look for that Christ figure. In literature, you can think of C.S. Lewis's Aslan the Lion, which is clearly a Christ figure. You can think of Obi Wan Kenobi and A New Hope. Strike Me Down Now, 
If you strike me down now, surely I shall become more powerful. And that's exactly, of course, what Lucas is doing. He's working with Joseph Campbell, and he wants that myth. He wanted his Luke Skywalker. Great, there's a crazy. We can even look at Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino, a wonderful movie, by the way, where by the end, Walter Kowalski is on the ground with his, eye, with his arms out. And if you look very closely at the film, you can see Eastwood literally beating a dead horse. No, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can actually watch in his films, this is the trajectory he wants to go. He wants a Christ figure, and he found one. And again, I, I actually, I love the movie. Um, <clears throat> um, but um, I don't know that a Christ figure is as far as we want to go. That Christ figure become, and it is a Christ figure, one who is willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of another or for community, to lay down one's life for one's fellow man. Certainly a Christ figure. But any reading of Scripture any reading of uh, the ancient uh, church, any reading of, of, of the Middle Ages, will start to show you that there's an expansive notion of Christology. And I think when we get to modernity, it will expand even more. I think it probably retracts on those earlier forms, but it starts building on other visions. And I want to be able to tackle some of those things too. So today I'd like to be both reductive in as much as I respect the Christology within any piece of literature, on its own terms, and often on its own heretical terms, I can come to a better understanding, and this will be shocking for you, of the literature. Seems to me if we're talking Christology and literature, I'm concerned about the literature. I may come to a better understanding of Christology or of even Christ himself, but this only comes after a charitable engagement with the literature on its own, in its own Christological terms. And as you'll see, I'd like to be expansive in the multitude of the images that our authors utilize. I don't have time to analyze every single one of these pieces. I'm just going to be throwing you images from different centuries, from different poets, until maybe I get to the 19th century. And I want to slow down a little bit as we get into the 20th century. To show you that a Christology can even extend to atheists. Some of, the, some of the finest Christological poetry I've seen actually come from atheists. Because it turns out they too are wrestling with Christ. They too are wrestling with a the theology. So we want to immerse ourselves in those, uh, those images as well. Before I begin... I have my own meditative texts for today, something to guide my own reading. Uh, for any of you who know anything about medieval literature, this is just what one does in the Middle Ages. You have a meditative text, a center text, and as you go through your reading, that text is on your mind. And so I have a few today that I'm focusing on, and I think you'll see how they're connected to one another. The first is 1 Corinthians 15.28, quote, When all things are made subject to him, that is to say God, then the Son himself will, be, uh, will also be subject to him who put all things under Christ. This is the key line. That God may be all in all. A second. It's what's known as the proscomedia before the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom um, in, in the Eastern liturgy. 
Um, before liturgy, when the priest and the deacon are doing this proscomedia, you're preparing the lamb for the altar that will become the body and blood of Christ. And again, at the great entrance, when the priest and the deacons go through the, go through the, uh, the nave and come back up and to place the hosts um, on the altar itself, we have a prayer that we recite. We say, in the tomb with the body, in Hades with soul as God, in paradise with the thief, and on the throne with the Father and the Holy Spirit, what's thou, O boundless Christ, filling all things? And the third, and it really is pretty directive in all of biblical exegesis, at least old, ancient, Christian biblical exegesis up through really the 17th century, and that's the road to Emmaus. The beautiful line, Luke uh, 13, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So an expansiveness. What would I say? Even, and I'll, I guess I'll use bold language, almost as if Christ saturates the cosmos. Is there, filling all things waiting to be tapped into. Tapped into, of course, by believers, but by poets as well. So the first place I want to begin is to think about what's a Christological reading if we're thinking through the New, the New Testament as a reading of an Old Testament through a Christotelic lens. We can call it Christological. I like Christotelic with a purpose of seeing Christ in those things. And we'll begin with the most obvious Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Compare that. I, I'm sure you already have, and you all know this. It's obvious, I hope. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came to be through him. There's an anthropology for you. And without him, nothing that is came to be. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not conquer. Beautiful, beautiful. What do I, it's not even a, not a reinterpretation. It's a beautiful fleshing out, an illumination of what's really going on there in Genesis 1, through that Christotelic lens. So there it is. You have to start thinking of the New Testament in its appropriations and readings of Scripture. Anytime you see in the New Testament the word Scripture, they mean what you call the Old Testament. A second one. John chapter 3, verse 13. Quote, And no one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is from Numbers 21.9, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The, the quote from Numbers 21.9, this is when the Israelites are getting bitten by the nasty poisonous serpents in the desert. And God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent so that they look on it, and they won't die when the snakes bite them. Now there's something beautiful going on here. He's talking about Christ descending and ascending with the bronze serpent. And in some ways, we read that, and I think correctly, we read that as an image of the crucifixion, to believe in Christ crucified. 
If those pesky snakes in the desert, if they could just look on the bronze serpent, and that was enough to get them not to die from those serpents temporarily, then the look on this new bronze serpent, this new Greek word, pharmacon, those poison and the cure, to look upon that gives you eternal life. But there's a second thing going on. And for those who don't know Second Temple Judaism, it will kind of go over your head very quickly. He's talking about the ascension of Christ. That the, and the two are connected. The ascension of Christ on the cross, but the ascension of Christ after 40 days going back to God the Father. And this is important in Second Temple Judaism. Because Christ as God goes through the various spheres of the cosmos. Cleansing it of all the demons. He's paving our way so that we can follow through the cross in the ascension to go and sit with Christ at the right hand of the Father. So it's a double going up there. And then I like to have fun. Once you start to understand biblical imagery and biblical illusions, for those of you who have taken my biblical narrative course or or really even great books with Genesis, we know very clearly that anytime you see an image of uh, the ocean, In the Old Testament, we automatically think it's life. But in the Old Testament, it is an image of shale. It's an image of death. It's even an image of chaos that our biblical writers are using from Canaanite and Sumerian myth. And that should make perfect sense for you. Why? Because what does God do to the waters? He takes the firmament and he pushes them down below the earth. He takes the firmament and he pushes them above the sky. God has created, uh, he's created a safe space for you from chaos and death. Hopefully the flood episode makes a little bit more sense now. It's not just torrential downpour. It's essentially God saying, you want chaos and death the way in which you live? Then I will just punch a hole in the firmament and here's the chaos and death that you want. Let's try this creation thing again. Dry land becomes, just think about the Exodus. What did the Israelites have to cross on? Chaos and death pushed to the side. What do they walk on? We're told repeatedly, they walk on dry land. Why? Because God is protecting them from chaos and death. To each side. So I think this is in some ways a precursor to Christ walking on water. When you see Christ walk on the water, it's like, well, that's not that great of a miracle. He can resurrect the dead. And even Peter can do it. Even even pre-resurrection, Peter can do it. But what does it actually mean? Well, this is God incarnate. Who can, in fact, walk on that very source of chaos and death, which he's about to come and destroy. And even more beautifully, when Peter comes out, Peter has faith. And what happens to Peter initially? That belief saves him. Think of the cross. Think of coming up. Think of the ascension. He believes. And he does not succumb to the chaos and death. And then it's beautiful because he starts to sink. You know what I think we're seeing in the sinking of of St. Peter there? It's a proto-harrowing of Hades. As Christ reaches out his hand. And pulls him up out of that chaos. It's, the New Testament already knows what the final story is. It may in fact be telling you uh, uh, the life of Christ in eschatological reality through biography and history. But we have to come to search and read Christologically. Sounds funny to read the New Testament Christologically. Let me add to it Christologically and eschatologically. Of the end things because those end things have been done. Christ has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And I'll just take one more. I probably shouldn't, but I can't help it. If you ever notice in biblical literature, it always seems that men are finding their brides at a well. Moses and Zipporah, Jacob and Rachel, 
Um, Isaac and Rebekah, which is probably my favorite of all of the biblical, well, scenes that there, that there are. But St. John uh, in chapter 4 picks up on this. If you remember, the Samaritan woman sitting by the well. And what are they talking about? How many times she's been married. He says, and you're living with one and he's not your husband. And it's a beautiful thing because she gets up and uh, 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 we have a name for her. I think it's in the Western tradition as well. Her name's Fotini. She becomes a disciple of Christ. She goes out and preaches Christ. So what you see in this betrothal scene is actually a bride of Christ who's given up those ways of looking for, uh, for her bridegroom because, to use more biblical language, her bridegroom is right there in this betrothal scene by the well. Again, it has to be a flexibility of those Christological and biblical images. I want to move quickly to a, a patristic literature. St. Ephraim the Syrian, he, he dies around seven, uh, 373. He has a collection of hymns called the Nisbean Hymns. This one comes from uh, hymn number 69, uh, uh, verse 12. It's just two lines I want to read to you, just two. And they're very simple. I'm going to pause at the first one, and I want you to think of your own Christological narrative and how that second line is going to fill out the first, okay? Here's the first line. The Most High, meaning God the Father, the Most High knew that Adam wanted to become a god. The Most High knew that Adam wanted to become a god. Now you have to think, great, where's your reading going? Some of you. And so he crushed that little worm. <laughs> he booted that prideful man out of the garden. I have to assume this has to be a reading. It's, it's certainly a Christological reading at a certain point. You understand what I'm getting at? It's not how St. Ephraim reads it. Here's the second line. The Most High knew that Adam wanted to become a god. So he sent his son who put Adam on in order to grant his desire what we were just talking about. St. Ephraim, here's a Syriac who didn't know the Greek tradition who has a clear teaching of theosis. That's what this theosis means, to become partakers of a divine nature. Right? Psalm 86.2, Ye are all gods, sons of the Most High. Syriacs really took this quite seriously. There's his Christology born out in the poetry itself with a Christology that's predicated upon deification. And even better, it's a deification predicated upon the sacrament of baptism. Because what does it mean for Christ to, to, uh, to put us on? It means God became man and clothed us, clothed himself in our humanity. And by dint of doing so, because the, uh, he's the uncreated God, he can clothe our humanity in his divinity. And you're grafted into this clothing through baptism itself. Right? All of those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ because Christ comes down in the, uh, in the incarnation and puts on that human nature. So two readings there. Second patristic piece of literature, and I just, it's just one of my favorite poems in the world. It's, it's a hymn of Cassiani. It's around 850. She's the only uh, female named in any Byzantine manuscript of, of hymns at that time. And it's really interesting what she's doing. She's taking Matthew 26, 6, 16, the woman who uh, anoints Christ's uh, feet with the oil, and combines it with the sinful woman from Matthew chapter 7, 36 through 50. Here's her hymn. 
O Lord, the woman who had fallen into many sins, having perceived thy divinity, received the rank of ointment bearer, offering these spices before thy burial, wailing and crying, Woe is me, for the love of adultery and sin has given me a dark and lightless, lightless night. Accept the fountains of my tears, O thou who draws the waters of the sea by the clouds, incline thou to the sigh of my heart. O thou who didst bend the heavens by thine inapprehensible condescension, I will kiss thy pure feet, and I will wipe them with my tresses. And this is the line I love. I will kiss thy feet, whose tread, when it fell on the ears of Eve and paradise, dismayed her so that she did hide herself because of her fear. Who then shall examine the multitude of my sin and depth of thy judgment? Wherefore, O my Savior and deliverer of my soul, turn not away from thy handmaiden, O thou of boundless mercy. Notice what she does here. She connects the two women in the Gospels to Eve in paradise. And Eve, remember, when Adam and Eve hear what? The footsteps in the garden. Cassiani imagines that's Christ walking in the garden. And what does Eve do? Eve turns and runs and hides. But what does the sinful woman do now in this place? She comes and she wipes the feet with the ointment and with her tears, prepares him for a burial. This is a Christology predicated upon repentance. For Cassiani, repentance is this greatest gift of God to turn back to him in this manner. Classical allusions, we can ask, okay, so we have, you know, this is obvious. New Testament, it's Christological. And you're like, yay, you have a PhD to tell you the New Testament would be (laughs) Christological. (laughs) Um, um, Patristic, oh, you have Christian theologians who utter Christological poetry. Do you imagine that? But what about the classical world? What about all of those myths that we study here? Um, um, Christian poets love utilizing all of this. There's a beautiful 14th century poem in Old French called Ovid Moralisé. It's 72,000 lines. And it is a translation and retelling. And this is what I love, and the students are on me for great books. You will love this. It's a translation and a retelling of all 15 books of Ovid's Metamorphoses with eros properly defined, with proper Christological, typological, allegorical, tropological readings of these characters. And two of the most famous classical characters for uh, Christians, one was Orpheus. They loved the story of Orpheus. And I don't want to go into the ancient church. The ancient church was bludgeoning Orpheus. They wanted to do away with it because they saw a a connection between the ancient Orpheus. They saw him as being the originator, the creator of Greek religion, the Greek mystical religion. And so, of course, they want to replace him with Christ. And there are all sorts of charges of paganism and whatnot. But a later, late uh, uh, antiquity, early medieval, even a late medieval, they see Orpheus, though, in Christological terms. How so? Well, if you remember the story... His wife gets bitten by a snake and she goes down to Hades and Orpheus is torn apart. He mourns and then he goes down to the Hades and he asks for his wife back. And they say, you can have her on two conditions, on one condition really, two, walk straight, 
to do not look back. And Orpheus looks back, and he loses his wife a second. He says, for a second time. Christians loved it because Christ is the fulfillment of the Orpheus story. Why? They see in his wife Eve. They see in his wife the church. All of the saints who are in Sheol, who are in Hades, separated from God. What does Christ do? Like Orpheus, he goes down there and grabs the bride by his hand. If you've ever seen a resurrection icon in the Eastern tradition, it's Christ holding out his hand to Eve and, and Adam pulling them out. It's quite beautiful. They see, like they do in the Old Testament, they see that Christ is the fulfillment of these various challenges. They see it in Heracles' 12th challenge in in trying to get Cerberus up, who's the guardian of the gates of hell. They see Christ is actually fulfilling what Heracles ought to have done, which is utterly destroyed. This is why you'll, you'll, if you remember in Dante, he'll say when, when, when Theseus came down and ripped Right? Ripped his jaw so he could no longer feast any longer. It's the imagining of this is what Christ goes to do. The jaw is torn apart. In fact, in a lot of iconography, you will have one of three images for the hellmouth. It will be either a dragon, which is fantastic from the a Garden of Eden, serpent dragon figure. It will be a lion, various apocalyptic uh, literature. Or, or it will be this dog. And sometimes you'll find a dog... And you can look closely and you'll see multiple heads. And I think it's a re- reference to, to Heracles there. If we want to stick with this story of the harrowing of Hades, the harrowing of hell, and I realize some of you come from a tradition that not only does not recognize the harrowing of Hades or the harrowing of hell, you despise it. That it's not there in the gospel texts. Great, wonderful. But you better learn about it. Because if you don't learn about the harrowing of Hades or the harrowing of hell, you are going to miss all sorts of literature from the 5th century up to the 16th century. The harrowing of Hades that would essentially come from the Gospel of Nicodemus is the most popular of all Christian narratives that it's outside of the Gospel texts. Bar none. The deep, rich tradition. So even there, what do we, what do we want to say? Is in, in Old English... They imagine their Christ victor, and what does he do? Christ, victor, harrow, Christ the victor harrows Hades in a very belligerent fashion. He kicks the door down. He defeats them utterly with military might. And he rescues, he rescues his loyal things, brings them home. They're in exile. He brings them home from that hostile adversary. And by the way, in Old English, what, what is Satan's major sin? It's not pride. It's betrayal. He betrayed his Lord who gave him everything. Made him the highest angel possible. And turned his back. And wanted to go have another. I mean, this is ultimate treachery in Old English literature. Right? But then what can you do? You can move to 14th century. So, uh, say, 400 years later. You can move to the 14th century. And you'll still see Christ the warrior harrowing Hades. Say, for example, in a Piers Plowman. Those of you who have read Piers. He's there with his bloody joust. And you don't know if it's Christ or Piers, which means, is it Christ? Uh, um, is it Piers Plowman, this figure? Is it, is it St. Peter, who's a Pope figure? But it's the bloody warrior Christ. But then you can go to the York mystery play, put on by the saddlers of the town of York. And you know what Christ does there in 14th century York? And there's a reason why Christ does this. He defeats Satan with legal arguments. 
Guilds are the ones who were putting on all of these displays. So law was very important to them. And Christ and Satan essentially engage in who has property rights over human souls. Who deserves them? Right? And I bring all this up because what I'm trying to show you is to understand those various Christian narratives. They will manifest themselves differently in those cultures. And will bring out something richer and deeper in that Christology as well. And in that same 14th century, now I want to move away from this either lawyer Christ or warrior Christ. It's one of my favorite images of Christ is from a 14th century anchoress in Norwich. We call her Julian. And she gives us a vision of Christ the mother. And some of you may think, my goodness, this is scandalous. Let me just tell you, this is not scandalous. This is, um, she's working from, one, it has a long patristic tradition, Clement of Alexandria, Ambrose, Augustine, Anselm. It's based on biblical language which she uses whenever uh, um, uh, Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who sent you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? That's the text she's thinking about Christ as mother. And Christ as mother is only with regards to um, um, an, an economic salvation, not the Trinity in and of itself, but the way in which God comes to us. And she wants to argue that God comes to us through this image of motherhood. And she uses a second passage, which is from John 16, 21. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she is delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. So I just want to read her passage knowing, right? One is, I wish I could tell students. It would be great. That would, sometimes that would like, get them to read it, go, oh, look how scandalous this is. It's like, ah, oh, it's just kind of plain. And let me just say, beautiful Christology. And I, I'm just going to read it in translation for you. Our high God, the sovereign wisdom of all, comes to a low place himself to do the service and the office of motherhood in all things. We know that our mothers bear us to pain and to dying. Ah, what is that? But our very mother Jesus bears us to joy and endless life. Blessed is he. Thus he sustains us with love and travail and suffered grievous thorns, the sharpest pains that ever was or shall be and finally died. And he showed us in these great words of love, if I could suffer more, I would suffer more. Christ might not die again, but he will never stop working. For the dear, worthy love of motherhood has made him, and I love her word here, a debtor to us. And in the Middle English, it means someone to whom you owe a debt and someone who owes you a debt. And I think that's the most perfect definition of parenthood I've ever, ever encountered in my life. So for her, the Christological vision really is the way in which we have been united to Christ. Through baptism, of course, through the Eucharist, through God becoming man. Her revelation 14, uh, I've said elsewhere, is that it's her version of cur deus homo, why the God man. And she ends up with this image of motherhood. I was going to do a section on Blake, but I want to make sure we have plenty of time to get to others. Blake's really fascinating. He creates his own, his whole own mythology of who Christ is and what Christ does. I'm going to skip that though, because I do want to get to Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky has a very simple Christology. Everyone thinks of him as, you know, an Orthodox author. 
if you read his novels and you know things about Orthodox liturgy and, and uh, uh, theology, he, he, he's really not a very Orthodox writer. His Christology is pretty straightforward. He writes, and all it is is simply an emptying of the ego. Here's what he writes. Christ alone could love man as himself, but Christ was a perpetual ideal to which man strives and according to the law of nature should strive. Meanwhile, since the appearance of Christ as the ideal man of the flesh, it has become clear as day that the highest final development of the personality must arrive at this, that man finds, knows, is convinced with the full force of his nature that the highest use a man can make of his personality, of the full development of his ego, ego, is, as it were, to annihilate that ego, to give it totally and to everyone undividedly and unselfishly. You want to know why so many characters in Dostoevsky's novels fail? I give you exhibit A. This is their model. And he's always struggling to find the great saint, the life of a great sinner, which he takes as that great saint. This gets him into a mess. For those of you who have read The Idiot, if you haven't, you should. Prince, Prince Mishkin, in his notebooks, he calls him Prince Christ. He clearly has an idea. This is a Christ figure. And this has divided criticism ever since the novels come out. Why? Because here's a man who wants to empty his ego. The children love him. And yet, he messes up in this world. He can't fix things. So when you say, oh, is he a Christ figure? Yes, but for Dostoevsky, it's out of a pure emptying of an ego. Students oftentimes are taken back. Why? But he doesn't give up his life for anyone. No, he gives up his ego for everyone, right? But that leads to their destruction, to which I go, that's Dostoevsky's problem. He found his Christ figure and he hit a roadblock. Or, for some critics, Mishkin, in as much as he's a Christ figure, he's an anti-Christ figure. He's failed. That at the end, he looks like the Holbein painting of the dead Christ. There's only death and there is no resurrection. And that's what can make a man, to use Dostoevsky's language, that is what can make a man lose his faith. And the other place where I think, with regards to Dostoevsky's Christology, I don't want to say it's a blunder, but at least it's problematic, and I think it's a good problematic, and that, of course, is in the Brothers Karamazov, the two chapters in the center, the rebellion in the Grand Inquisitor. And he gives his atheistic character, Yvonne, many critics think, and even Dostoevsky was worried about it, did I give him too good of an argument? That Yvonne is willing to look at all the suffering in the world and especially the suffering of the children. And he essentially says, if this is what it creates, the suffering of one child to create a paradise, then count me out. I'll hand back my ticket respectfully. And here's Dostoevsky, I think his great trick with Yvonne is Yvonne is willing to even argue for a universalism. Yvonne's willing to say everyone can be saved. Great but it better not be bought with the price. Usually, universalism is a way out of theodicy. It's a nice, quick, easy way out. Dostoevsky even covers that up. Though I don't think, this, this sounds terrible to say, about a, a genius of an author, I don't think he was metaphysically astute enough to be able to work through all of those problems of theodicy and metaphysics and whatnot. He is really bound and determined to work through human will, through suffering, for that salvation in Christ through the emptying of the ego. And so his response, 
Alyosha says, but there was one person who could do this for us. And he says, I'm getting to it. And that's the Grand Inquisitor. And it's Dostoevsky's recasting of the three temptations of Christ. Through the mouth of a Grand Inquisitor, um, in the face of Christ, who remains silent the entire time. Doesn't speak a word. The Grand Inquisitor says, you failed humanity. You've asked too much of them. He said, man does not live by bread alone. And the Grand Inquisitor is like, for the love of God, feed them. And he knows Christ is God. He says, you feed them. You have to feed them. Then guess what they'll do? Follow you. Let me just say, I'm very tempted by that reading. I think it's a good Christological reading. And Dostoevsky's too extreme for me. Then he gives a second one. Come down off the cross. Show them that you're God. Give them a miracle. Then they'll believe you're God. Why don't you want them to believe you're God? And some may object. Well, he came back resurrected, right? But that's not what Dostoevsky is doing in his work. You understand the distinction there? It's an important distinction. You don't want to say, but he's skipping over these parts of the gospel. Now just focus on what he has here and what his argument is. So God won't even show he's God by showing that he's God. That's the respect for free will that he has. And the third one is just take control over the kingdom, which is authority, and Christ rejects all of it. And the Grand Inquisitor says of Christ, you think too much of man. You treat him as if he were a god. But he's not a god. We will tell them the poor wretches that they are. They'll follow us because we'll tell them you're weak. You can't do it on your own. We'll do it for you. And Dostoevsky will have none of that. Again, perhaps, toward, perhaps for disastrous consequences. And in fact, it's really funny at the end of it all, Alyosha exclaims at the end of Yvonne's tale, your poem praises Jesus. It doesn't revile him as you meant him, as you meant it to do. It's a quotation from one of Dostoevsky's notes, one of his notebooks. Quote, even in Europe, there are not and have not been atheistic expressions of such force, meaning Yvonne. Dostoevsky's very conscious that he's created a tour de force. I don't know that Zosima answers Yvonne on his own terms. I don't know that he does. He answers him, and I buy Zosima's terms. I just don't know that they answer Yvonne's terms. And this is Dostoevsky's worry. Even in Europe, there are not and have not been many, uh, have not been atheistic expressions of such force. Consequently, it is not as a boy that I believe in Christ and confess him, but my Hosanna has passed through a great furnace of doubts. And it turns out he expects that of his readers. He respects you enough not to be the grand inquisitor, not to give you the easy way out. Not to simply say, why can't he be saved? Not to simply say, why did he have to commit suicide? Why did he have to have, go mad? He won't do it. And I think this insight brings us uh, to Nietzsche. And I wanted to bring up Nietzsche today for two reasons. One, um, obviously he's an atheist. And two, he thinks of himself as the Antichrist. Let's pit himself against Christ. And three, in the recent New Yorker article, Brad Berzer said he's the bet noir of campus. If he is, then boy, I love that man. Nietzsche. He should be. 
He sh- if he's the bet noir, I hope it's I hope it's fruitful. He will make you wrestle with your Christology. He understood that the West is deeply, deeply, maybe incurably Christian. He knows it. When Nietzsche, the lion he's most famous for, God is dead. We usually we just stop there. Why see all these stupid t-shirts, right? Say God is dead. Nietzsche. Nietzsche's dead God. Like, oh my goodness. It's hard when you have a lighter in your pocket. No. <laughs> God is dead, and then his next line is, and we have killed him. That scares Nietzsche to death because he knows we've drunk so deeply from Christianity, it will be hard to shake it off. I want to give you a couple of quotes because I think Nietzsche is an astute reader of Christianity. I think he has a Christology that's spot on. It's just simply he rejects it. He sees it, he understands it, and he rejects it. Quote, and this is from his Antichrist. This bearer of glad tidings died as he lived and taught, not to save mankind, but to show mankind how to live. It was a way of life that he bequeathed to man. His demeanor before the judges, before the officers, before his accusers, his demeanor on the cross. He does not resist. He does not defend his rights. He makes no effort to ward off the most extreme penalty. More, he invites it. He prays, suffers, and loves with those, in those who do him evil. Not to defend oneself. Not to show anger. Not to lay blames. On the contrary, to submit even to the evil one. To love him. We free spirits, it means Nietzsche, we free spirits. We are the first to have the necessary prerequisite to understanding what 19 centuries have misunderstood, that instinct and passion for integrity, which makes war upon, quote, the holy lie, even more than upon all other lies. I hope you see the two things. He's getting at what Christ did, and he's saying it's a lie, and I reject it. Here's a better one for you. Going back to our classical imagery, and this comes from his Will to Power, section 1052. And you guys have probably heard this, very famous. Dionysus versus the crucified. There you have the antithesis. It is not a difference in regard to their martyrdom. It is a difference in the meaning. Life itself, its eternal fruitfulness, and its recurrence creates torment, destruction, the will to annihilation what he sees in Dionysus. In the other case, that is Christ, suffering, the crucified is innocent one, counts as an objection to this life, as a formula to its condemnation. My teacher, René Girard, used to argue that Nietzsche completely understood the gospel better than anyone else at the time. Nietzsche discovered its truth, there most especially in Dionysus versus Christ. And he rejected the truth. And Rene used to say, this is why Nietzsche went mad. Which is, uh, Rene was brought back to Catholicism by reading uh, Dostoevsky. It's a very Dostoevskyan insight. In Dostoevsky's novels, when you see the truth, you have two ways. You either follow it, or you're going to go towards self-annihilation, suicide itself. It's a clear pattern in his novels. 
You see it and you either acquiesce, give yourself over, or there's madness and eventual suicide. I want to do one last thinker, and I want to do it quickly, because he was a great reader of both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. And that's Albert Camus, 20th century French uh, author. In his uh, novel, La Chute, The Fall, Jean-Baptiste Clemence, who does not want to take responsibility for a woman who's fallen into a river and who's drowned, and he's doing everything in this world as, as his cowardice becomes apparent to him. He tries to avoid everything at all costs. And he does this even through a retelling of the slaughter of innocence. He says, quote, and he's talking about Christ. Say, do you know why he was crucified, the one you were perhaps thinking of at this moment? Well, there were heaps of reasons for that. There are always reasons for murdering a man. On the contrary, it is impossible to justify his living. That's why crime always finds lawyers and innocence only rarely. But beside the reasons that have been very well explained to us for the past 2,000 years, there was one major reason for that terrible agony. And I don't know why it has been so carefully hidden. The real reason is that he knew he was not altogether innocent. This is part of Jean-Baptiste's game. He has to make everyone guilty. Now he's going after Christ. But it will backfire. If he did not bear the weight of the crime he was accused of, he had committed others even though he didn't know which ones. Did he really not know them? He was at the source after all. He must have heard of a certain slaughter of the innocents. The children of Judea massacred while his parents were taking him to a safe place. Why did they die if not because of him? Those blood-spattered soldiers, those infants cut in two, filled him with horror. But given the man he was, I'm sure he could not forget them. And as for that sadness that can be felt in his every act, Wasn't it the incurable melancholy of a man who heard night after night the voice of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing all comfort? The lamentation would rend the night. Rachel would call her children who had been killed for him, and he was still alive. Knowing what he knew, familiar with everything about man, ah, who would have believed that crime consists in less in making others die than in not dying oneself, brought him face to face day and night with his innocent crime, He found it too hard for him to hold on and continue. It was better to be of done with it, not to defend himself, to die in order not to be the only one to live and to go elsewhere, perhaps, he would be upheld. He was not upheld, he complained, and as the last straw, he was censored. Yes, it was the third evangelist, I believe, who suppressed his complaint. Why hast thou forsaken me? It was a seditious cry, wasn't it? Well then, the scissors, mind you, if Luke had suppressed nothing, the matter would hardly have been noticed. In any case, it would have not assumed such importance. Thus the censor shouts aloud what he prescribes. Like Yvonne before him, Jean-Baptiste both praises God, even inadvertently, yet ultimately comes to reject him, and actually has to make up things in his Christology in order to reject him, in order to make Christ guilty. So he runs from it, but he seems to have tripped himself up, admitting the truth that Christ, uh, of Christ and simultaneously rejecting it. And here's what's interesting. It's not Zosima's reading of the slaughter of the innocents. And I think that's what Camus is doing here. He knows Zosima's. Zosima, do you know what he tells the mother in the brother's cave? The woman who comes to him and talks about her three-year-old child who's dead and she hears his bare feet on the floors. That was Dostoevsky's child, by the way. 
when he, go to, when he went to go see St. Ambrose of Optina Monastery. It's his story. And, and Zosima says to her, quoting the same passage about Rachel, Lamentations, he tells the mother, don't ever be consoled. Don't ever be consoled. Weep for your children. And by the way, the children, when they die, they go to God and they raise their little fists. Why so soon? Why so soon? It's an affirmation of life. So you see here what Jean-Baptiste is doing. It is, let him be consoled. Let him escape that responsibility, which for me is different than his guilt, that responsibility. But you have to be able to look at Camus very carefully here, who, by the way, has a, a, he, a, he has, I think it was adapt, uh, adapted from a master's thesis or maybe a senior thesis on uh, Christian metaphysics and Neoplatonism. So he knows this stuff deeply. In fact, there's a great interview with him one time. Um, uh, he didn't think much of Christianity at the time, but he said at the, at the moment of Nouvelle Theologie, there were a bunch of Russian emigres that were interacting uh, 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 with those who were in Paris. And he said, for those of you who are Orthodox, you'll know this name. He says, there is this Christian thinker. His name's Vladimir Lasky. I'm very interested in his project and what he's, what he's doing. What he's doing. There's something of Camus. Guess what he's doing? I think he's still working through that. Still working through that furnace of doubt. And I want to leave you without commentary. Not such on a dowry note. 21st, 20th century. He's still living. His name's Scott Cairns. He has this beautiful poem. He's an American poet. He's actually come to campus on our visiting writing uh, uh, series. It's a poem within a collection called The Recovered Midrashim of Rabbi Saab, which is really clever of him. Uh, Midrash are stories that rabbinic uh, exegetes tell in order to flesh out a text. So he's going to a Jewish tradition to give you a Christological reading of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Listen carefully, because I'm not going to comment on it at all. I just want this to be the last word. And Yahweh sat in the dust, bone-weary after days of strenuous making, during which he, now and again, would pause to consider the way things were shaping up. Time also would pause these strange durations. It would lean back on its haunches, close its marble eyes, appear to doze. But when Yahweh himself finally sat on the dewy lawn, the first stage of his work all but finished, he took in a great breath laced with lush odors of creation and made him almost giddy. As he exhaled, a sigh and sweet mist spread out from him, settling over the earth. In that obscurity, Yahweh sat for an appalling interval, so extreme that time opened its eyes and once, despite itself, let its tail twitch. Then Yahweh lay back, running his hands over the damp grasses and in deep contemplation reached into the soil, lifting great hands full of trembling clay to his lips, which parted to avail another breath. With this clay, he began to coat his shins, cover his thighs, his chest, continued this layering. And when he had been wholly interred, he parted the clay at his side and retreated from it, leaving the image of himself to wonder in what remained of that early morning mist. Thank you.
that Q and A round. Um, do we have any questions? Do we have a question that we want to field right now, though? And, and let me say, um, at our various meetings out there, I'm I'm happy to talk about all all sorts. Um, I have a question about at the beginning. We were saying sometimes we oversimplify the works that we're reading, but then also we can have discussion with the case. Yes. Um, because we're dealing with the marriage yeah. It's an excellent question, and I, th I think it's I, th I think the answer is both simple and then complex. The simple answer is respect literature, please. Don't do violence to it. Because you want it to be a certain way does not mean it has to be that certain way. Because I, so uh, let me give you an example. Because I want Julian of Norwich to be a universalist, or because I want her to have a clear teaching of deification. I will then do whatever I can to her text to extract that sort of thing and not in good conscience knowing that she admits that the church has a teaching of hell, which therefore means there's no universalism. That I, we can't make things be what they want them, what we want them to be. Um, um, be it, and, and I run into this with Dostoevsky scholars. There, there are people out there who believe he teaches total depravity, which is really odd to me. But they need to find that he's teaching total depravity because they want him on their side. That's all I mean. So over-sanctifying things, um, which is different from what I'm describing there, over-sanctifying things is just, um, in some ways, I find it students trying to save sometimes the literature from itself. Which sometimes, if it's going down in flames, let it go down in flames. Or if you, li if you like a secular or atheistic poet, just love them on those terms. I love Nietzsche. I love Camus. I love their Christologies. I think they're brilliant. Love every moment. I'm not going to... So I just told you the quotation from Vladimir Lasky. Here's what that bad habit would look like. I would go and read his uh, text on metaphysics and Neoplatonism. I would use his quotation from Vladimir Lasky. Then come hell or high water, I'm going to find as many orthodox theological statements I can in his works. And I think that would be a violence to uh, Camus' project and to his Christology. I, I would not do that in good conscience. No, I hope you guys understand the reversal I'm doing here. Most of you are very pious, which is good, and maybe it's helpful I have not a pious bone in my body. <laughs> You're pious, and so you always want to rescue Christ. You always want to see that Christ in things. I'm perfectly happy understanding Christ will be fine. He's withstood 2,000 years. 2,000 years of a couple of great atheists along the way, Celsus in the ancient world and Nietzsche. I always say you can find the decadence of a culture by how bad their atheists are or how good they are. I believe we live in impoverished times. We don't have any, I don't think we have any really good ones anymore. So I would be careful. I don't want to rescue an atheist. I don't want to, I'll say this, I don't want to rescue C.S. Lewis and make him an orthodox writer. I don't want to do that. I want Lewis to be Lewis. I have, I have faith that Christ will be able to withstand whatever Christology poets are, are using. There. And that we don't have to make these things up. We don't have to see 
uh, baptism in mud water. By the way, uh, mud puddle, it may be true. It just depends on the corpus of that person's uh, work. I was going to do something scandalous with, with Blake, but I didn't, I didn't do that. I was, going to, I was going to give a Christological reading of Blake's where I don't think he intends a Christological reading. But because I know the rest of his poetry, I, I think I can do it. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.